0: Your phone pings. It's a WhatsApp message. You open it, and you cannot believe your eyes. Before you is a message, and it is a message all about yourself. It's a message where you are moaned about. It's a message where you are criticized. Immediately you realize, as you've opened your phone, immediately you realize what has happened that the other person has sent this to you by mistake. And you look at it and you are devastated. You are hurt beyond words. It feels that your, your soul has left your body. Or let's change the scenario. Let's say you go through something that's quite tough in your life, and it's a a quite difficult chapter, quite a dark chapter, and wait a minute, though you know uh, that your whole church fellowship group know about it, the reality is that hardly any of them have reached out to you to, to see how you're doing, to see how you are, or a last scenario, it's your family, our beloved family but someone close to us in our family has done us wrong. Okay, it's nothing disastrous, okay? And it's, it's nothing too serious, but man, they lied to you. A member of the family, they lied to you. And you feel not just let down, there's a little bit of you that just quite honestly feels betrayed. There are our scenarios. My question is, in these scenarios, what should our attitude be towards the person who has treated us in that way? Now, not, not, definitely not. Uh, What do you want to do to the person who's done that? That's not, let's not go there. And the question is not, what would the world or our society tell us to do to that person? Oh, no, absolutely not. No. Much more this. What should be our response? What response is in, most in keeping with our status as followers and disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? What response is most in keeping with our status in Christ? Well, okay, this morning we come to these couple of verses. Now, these are verses, I think, that, you know, they could be read like this. So, these two verses could be read just about how we should treat other people generally, Okay, Jesus given just a couple of verses, just generally speaking, how to treat people. I don't actually think that's what we've got here. Now think about this, not only do these verses come at the end of a longer section about how to love the unloving, but then you think about some of the concepts in these verses. Now did you notice this, that what's called for is forgiveness? Did you see that in the verses? forgiveness. Also, what else is called for? Not condemning people right right away. Do you see, what we've got here is how to respond when people fail us. What we've got here is teaching about what to do, how to respond when we are let down. In short, Jesus shows us here how to love and how to love when we've been wronged. And let's do it like this. Um, I'll give you, I suppose, the the big idea of the sermon. Let's do that. So that's the, uh, that's the, if somebody asks you later on, and let's, I hope they do, but if somebody asks you later on, so what was the point of today's sermon? This is the big idea, okay? What's the big idea here is this. As Christians, when we've been wronged, we should seek to treat that person in the same manner that God has treated us in the gospel. So when we've been, do you hear it? Change it slightly. When we've been wronged as Christians, we should still seek to hold out mercy, compassion, and grace. So that's the the big idea. And I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's bring up uh, the text, if we can, on the screen. And we'll probably, there's the text, and it's Entirety. We'll probably leave it up there. But I want you just to glance at it. Maybe it's in front of you just now or on the screen. I want you just to think about what we've got there in terms of a structure. Now, would you agree with this? What we've got, first of all, we've got a couple of negative imperatives. A couple of negative commands. Judge not, condemn not. So we've got that. Then Jesus gives us a couple of quite positive Instructions. Do you recognize them? Can you pick them out? Forgive and give. And then, right at the end of the section, we have a principle. Do you see? For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So, I want you and I to stick like glue uh, to the structure that God's word is giving us. Okay, so I want us to think about the couple of negative imperatives the couple of positive imperatives and then to think about the the principle that's that's the plan for how we'll approach this uh, section of scripture so i'm going to ask you if you haven't already done so if you would just make sure that you've got copy of scripture or you've got one eye just one eye on uh, the screen if you like and let's think first of all about the prohibitions the prohibitions let's let's look at this text together and prohibitions. Okay, if we look at it, yes, you can see that the second of those negative instructions is what? Well, what's the second one? It is uh, condemn not, condemn not. If we look at the first one, so just the first words, I, I'm pretty sure that you would agree with me that what we've got in front of us there is actually one of the more famous phrases in all of the Bible isn't it? Just the first couple of words there, the first phrase, is very famous stuff, isn't it? So Scotland, I want to suggest, is largely probably, with great sadness I would say, Scotland is largely biblically illiterate, isn't it? Yet there are still at least a couple of million Scots who if they were backed into a corner and criticized today, they're going to come back at us with judge not, uh, lest ye be judged. Okay, so the point I'm making is that this is well known, certainly, these words, but what do they mean? When Jesus says judge not, what is he calling for? Okay, so let's start like this. What is Jesus not commanding here? I want to say this. Here, Jesus is not prohibiting us From making value judgments of any kind. I think we can probably all sit on that quite comfortably, can we? The idea that Jesus is not forbidding his people from critical thinking. Do we agree? Yet, isn't that how the world interprets Jesus' words? Let's say this week you're in the car and you've got the radio on and there's a panel show, you know, one of these radio chat shows, and what are they doing? They're discussing whatever the latest progressive moral ethical issue is this week, and they're discussing this on a panel, and they've invited a, a vicar to be part of this panel, and he's a good guy, evangelical, straightforward, but they've Invited him on. And what the vicar does is he just, he gives really gently, he pushes back a little bit, he gives a sort of, you know, measured response, but, you know, it's a cautionary viewpoint. What is the host of this radio show likely to say? They're likely to say this, aren't they? They're likely to go to the, the vicar and say, Oh, but vicar, come on, you're a vicar. I thought it was judge not. I thought judge not, lest you be judged, vicar. As though being a follower of Jesus Christ disqualifies us from making any sort of value judgment whatsoever. Now, is that what Jesus is calling for here? Absolutely not. And if you just look down the page at verse 43, I think it is, 44, you'll see that it's definitely not that. Do you notice in verse 43 that the, Jesus speaks about the idea of knowing a tree by its fruit? So Jesus is saying, look at the fruit to, to establish. What's Jesus doing there with his people? i tell you what he's doing. He's actually actively encouraging us to make value judgments, isn't he? He's actually saying to his people, you know, there has to be some critical thinking. So whatever judge not means, it doesn't mean that Jesus is telling us to suspend all of our critical thinking or making any value judgments whatsoever. Okay, you with me? We understand what judge not does not mean. What do we need to establish now? I think we need to establish what is Christ calling for. Okay, well, maybe a few wise uh, sages might be able to help us out at this point. (coughs) What I've done is try to gather in a few trusted, I hope, uh, definitions of what Jesus is calling for here. And uh, in a sense... You can take your pick, but please listen. What is Jesus talking about? One writer says this: What is being prohibited here is a fault finding spirit that leads to a condemnatory attitude. Another author says this what 's being forbidden is a censorious outlook towards others. I think my favorite my favorite is, is this what we 've got here is a prohibition. Being prohibited is a quickness to condemn others whilst being slow to acknowledge our own guilt. I think you you and I could probably sum that up in one word, the word judgmentalism. Perhaps, could we? In In fact, are we not helped here, I think, by a picture that Jesus himself paints a bit later on in in the gospel. I I don't often ask you to flick around in the Bible, but if you would, on this occasion, if you've got a copy of Scripture, if you look forward to it, it's just a few pages. Go to chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. If you just flick forward there... (coughs) Now, what you've got, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, I'll tell you what everyone else is looking at. It's a a very famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, if you were to ask me before any of this, if you were to say, Andy, what is that parable about? I would have said that those two people, the Pharisee and the tax collector, are demonstrating different attitudes towards God. Maybe some of you would have said, yeah, that's, that's possibly true. But what they also do is they demonstrate different attitudes to the other people in their lives. Now, the tax collector, he he recognizes his his lowliness. There's this immense humility before God, but also in the way that he looks at the other people in his life. You know, I'm the worst of sinners, almost, he's saying. But look look at verse—so that's the tax collector, but look at the Pharisee in verse 11. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee, it says— standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, I'm not like these people. Do you see it? Look at his attitude to the people in his life. I thank you that I'm not like these other people, these other men extortioners and and adulterers or even this tax collector. Christian friend, is that not a picture for you of what it is that Christ Jesus is prohibiting in chapter 6? Prohibiting this superiority that exercises itself in picking at other people's faults. Now, if we just pause for a second, perhaps it's the case for some of us in here that we are a little bit surprised at the weight of emphasis that the the Bible places on this particular sin, Does that surprise you a little bit? If you think about the fact that Luke leads with not judging, and then maybe homework for this afternoon, if you were to look at Matthew's parallel account in Matthew chapter 7, Matthew really goes to town on this idea of not judging. Does that surprise us a little bit? And we may be asking in our hearts just now, why is it that the Bible comes down so heavily on this idea of not condemning, not judging? If you are asking that, I will read you one verse from the Bible, and I think you'll get it. And I want you, as I read this verse to you, I want you to see if you get the link. Here we go, this is Romans 14.10. Listen, Paul writes, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? And then he goes on to say, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Why are you judging others? You will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, does everyone in the room see the link? Listen, what we are doing when we are condemning the other people in our lives, what we're doing is seeking to usurp the role of the almighty God. That's how serious this is when we are trying to criticize, trying to judge others, what we're trying to do is take away the role that truly belongs to God as judge. God, God, the only one who actually knows people's full circumstances. The only one who knows truly people's motives and hearts. Do you see how serious it is? And so what do we do here? Well, I I, I think uh, perhaps there's people in the room who recognize just now, that this is a clear, habitual sin in our lives. Perhaps that's where you are. You recognize, okay, what Jesus is saying here is for me and to me. And there will be other people in this room. And there'll be people here who are not quite sure if this is a problem of our heart. So what I think we need to do is just ask ourselves a couple of diagnostic questions to reveal if this really is a problem for us or not. So, you ask yourself this just now as I ask myself the same question. Question one As you consider your life just now, have you become more exercised by other people's sin than you are about your own? Is it actually, when you think about it, it's other people's sin that you dwell on and, and you, you think about and it just more than your own? That's question one. Question two, if we overheard you, I don't know, like you can fill in the scenario, can you? Like, I don't know, maybe you're you're speaking to your spouse uh, at breakfast, or maybe you're at a friend's house, and you're having a cup of tea, and it's a Christian friend, and, and all of St. Peter's, we're at the window, okay? We're hiding at the window, and we're logging in. I don't know if... Uh, people understand, if you're not from Scotland, what logging in is, I'm sure you do. But if we're at the window and we're overhearing, what are we likely to overhear? As you speak to your fellow Christian, are we more likely to hear you confessing your own sin? More likely to hear you encouraging that Christian gently and graciously? Or are we more likely to overhear you condemning other people in your life, judging others? If it's that, isn't that a problem? Isn't that a problem? Friends, if this is a a sin in our lives, I think, honestly, we need to take some dramatic action. And, And that might mean just seeking accountability. So it could be that we ask our spouse, or we ask, we've got trusted Christian friends, most of us, don't we? We ask our spouse or we ask a trusted Christian friend, please pull me up on this. If you hear me going off on one <laughs> by other people, maybe we need to do that, but there's something else that we need to do and it's much more important. We need to take this in ourselves and we need to take it to God, don't we? And we need to repent and we need to ask God for help. We need to pray, God, help me to hold my tongue. Lord God, please heal my heart. So we see the prohibitions. Christ says to us, condemn not, judge not. Let's move to those positives. So we've seen the prohibitions. Let's move to the positives. Would you you just go back for a second to the the scenarios that we opened with and we started with? Can you at least remember a couple of them? That uh, the person who's picked up the WhatsApp message, no, that wasn't meant for them. Or uh, that uncaring or apparently uncaring fellowship group. So what do we realize so far? Okay, we're not just to condemn those people straight off the bat, condemn them outright, but is there anything else that Christ calls for? Well, as, as, as you move on in the text, if you look at it, you can see that having told us not or what not to do, Christ tells us what we should do, and he gives us a couple of positive Imperatives, positive commands for us. I think you can see what they are. We mentioned them before. We'll take them just now briefly, I promise you, but we'll take them one after the other. What's the first positive imperative? Do you see? Verse 37, forgive. Forgive. When we're wrong, forgive. Um, under the auspices of what is called CPD, CPD. Uh, do those initials mean much to people uh, I had to look up again what CPD actually stood for I have been quoting it I've been using it at a presbytery meeting and <laughs> the initials don't stand for what I thought they stand for So I've been making a fool of myself on the floor of presbytery but I think it is now if I've got this right continuous uh, professional development somebody nodded at me and say, yes that's good Nothing to do with careers or anything like that, continuous professional uh, development. Under the auspices of that, every fortnight at uh, certain, certain junks, junctions of the year, uh, a group of ministers uh, connected to our presbytery, we, we meet together to, to study um, and to look into certain topics and read books together. Uh, every fortnight for blocks of the year. We've been doing it for years, looking into aspects of theology or whatever it might be. You can take your pick. Most recently, we've been gathering together uh, to study this particular topic that you and I are now face-to-face with, and it is the topic, the very difficult topic of forgiveness. Now, as we've been reading a book together and talking about it, I think it's probably fair to say that we as a group of ministers were unanimous and seeing that the author that we were studying made some really good points about what forgiveness is not. Listen. So forgiveness is not just pretending that something bad has not happened. We can do that. Can you do that? I do that. Forgiveness, just pretend, just try to forget it. Just pretend that something's not occurred. Then... Nor does forgiveness mean turning a blind eye to sin. Forgiveness is is not just brushing things under the carpet. There are times, and I wish that everybody can hear me say this, there are times when people need to be held to account clearly, honestly, for their sin. So, Everyone got it? Forgiveness is not just brushing things under the carpet. But we're back to the same place we were at the first point, because that's good. That's what forgiveness is not. What is forgiveness? Biblical forgiveness. What I think Christ is calling for here is for you and I to act entirely contrary to our sinful instincts. Isn't that what it is? I'll pause I'm tempted to carry on, but no one's going to listen to me. Um, what did I say? Christ is calling for us to act contrary, in opposition, in a sense, to our sinful instinct. So if you, if you come into that for a second, you'll see what I mean. Somebody wrongs you in your life, clearly wrongs you. What do you want to do? What's the first instinct very often? Like if we hold our hands up and we're honest about it, we probably would say, we want revenge. Uh, Am I the only one that's gonna be honest enough to say that that's probably what happens? We want vengeance very often. And here, the Lord Jesus Christ is calling for the opposite of that, the opposite of that. I wonder if this phrase helps you. Forgiveness is not always acquittal, but it is amnesty. Forgiveness, not always acquittal, but it is amnesty. Tim Keller, you know that name, right? Tim Keller says this, and isn't this ever so helpful? Drink it in. He says forgiveness uh, is a form of voluntary suffering. Do you see how it's the opposite? It's not retaliation. It's not seeking vengeance, but Keller says, in forgiveness, what we do is we volunteer to bear the cost ourselves. Isn't that something? Isn't it far-reaching? I wonder, even as we just simply touch on this subject this morning in here, is it real for you? Like, Do you recognize right now that recognize in your heart that in your life there are people that quite clearly you are yet to forgive is that where you are then hear nothing from me but hear from jesus and what does he say judge not condemn not and christ in his words says and forgive so it's the first of the two positive imperatives there's another one i think i said in a sermon it wasn't that long ago that the, the only uh, bad four-letter word, sort of negative four-letter swear word that I'm allowed to say from the pulpit is that word, is the word hell. But if you look at the first word of verse 38, what do you see? Jesus gives us a second positive imperative, and it's the word Give. And, and, and maybe you think, well, that's another bad word because you know, when a minister begins to talk about giving, we recoil, don't we? And it's like, he's going to give us a big guilt trip about how we use our finances or something like that. You can see, I think every one of us can see, that is not what Jesus is talking about here at all. But is not what Jesus calls for here more remarkable? An incredible thing. Now listen, what Jesus is calling for is for his people to move even Beyond forgiveness. Like we thought what was just said was an incredible thing to ask from his people. But Christ is saying, no, 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 you you go beyond this. You forgive and you give. That not only are the people of God on occasion to wipe this slate clean, but we actually have to go to that person who's wronged us and act in generosity. Isn't this far reaching? The idea that we are to act to bless that person who's wronged us, act to honor that person who's wronged us. It's so, so counterintuitive and countercultural. I think we all just fall to our knees and we ask Jesus, how can I do this? And more, I think many of us ask, why, why would we do that? And I'll bring you a voice of, some, of a speaker that some of you know very uh, well, you know, personally, uh, a chap, a minister called Ligon Duncan. He's writing on these words, these words, forgive and give. And he says this, the only thing that will ever motivate us to obey Jesus here is the gospel of God. The only thing that will ever motivate us to do it is the gospel of God. And that is back at the big idea. Do, do you see that? Like when people wrong us, what do we do? Where does the motivation come from? How are we supposed to act when a person wrongs us? We seek to, we seek to treat that person in the same way that God has treated us. That's the motivation and that's the purpose. It's all right. We seek to hold out compassion. We seek to hold out mercy and grace so I'm going to ask you, Christian friends, to do a couple of things this week as far as application is concerned. And as tough as this is going to be, I'm going to ask you, number one, to give consideration to the people who have wronged you in your life and wrestle with Christ's teaching here. These verses, wrestle with it. Forgive and give. And then I'm going to ask you to do this. Second thing, I'd ask you to view that person who has wronged you through the lens of the redemptive work that God has done for you in your life. And what has he done for us? Isn't it beautiful? Can you you just go there? Can you focus on it for a minute? What has he done? God has watched his son live the most beautiful life. Not one step out of place. Living absolutely perfectly. God has watched and then become the recipient of wrath. Guilt and shame, all of that. He has seen his son rise to life and ascend. Why? So that we, now wait, those who have wronged God. Don't you see? We who have let God down. Do you see? So that we might be, and what would we say? Forgiven? Yes, forgiven. But that's part of it. There's another word. What has God done? The divine judge hasn't just forgiven us. The divine judge has then just taken us into his home, and he's given us a new name. He's made us heirs with Christ. Jesus, what has God done for those who have wronged him? He's forgiven and given. He's done it and given us much, and I promise you it's only if that is your focus. It's only if your life is rooted deep down in grace, deep down in God's saving works. Only then That we are going to respond in the way that Christ here demands. So we see the prohibitions, we see the positives, and then the last thing, and most briefly of all, we see this principle. The principle? Um, Throughout the Christian life, the the walk with Christ, the Christian life on this earth, um, I I know it as a pastor, I know it to be true in my, my life, but also in yours. That very often the people of God finding themselves they find themselves wrestling with the mystery of providence. Isn't that true? The question of why is it that God ordains some of the events in our lives the way He does? Does that not have us sometimes scratching our heads, slightly perplexed? Now, in a sense, the bad news is that in this life the mystery will very often remain won't it? We won't get answers. God's ways, we have to trust. They are higher, Isaiah 55. They are higher than ours, okay? So, there's an air, isn't there, always of mystery in God's providence? But I think before us on the screen, we are given actually a remarkable little insight into providence, and we're given almost a rule. Jesus gives us a rule here, for how it is that God works in the lives of his people. Isn't that remarkable? An insight into providence. Now, you can look at it if you look at the last phrase. (coughs) Do it with me there. Look at the last phrase. Do you see it? What is it? Verse 38. Think about providence. Think about our lives. Jesus promises you, for the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, Do you see that there's a reciprocity that informs God's working in Providence? Do you see that there's a proportionality to how God works for the measure we use? Now, what's going to happen in Providence, it will be measured back to us. There's a reciprocity. Isn't that important? Now, here's the truth for those who had their coffee this morning and who are totally on it today. You'll have noticed that there's a thread of reciprocity that runs through this whole day. Did you pick up on it? The proportionality? Just think about the opening negative imperatives that you've got here. What what is it? It's condemn not. It says judge not. But then what happens? What's the reciprocity? Judge not and you will not be judged. What does that mean? Does that mean that if, we, if we're wronged and we respond with kindness to that person that we'll never stand before the throne of grace in the end? Is that what that means? Definitely not, but it does mean this. When we're wronged, if we show mercy to that person, in the end, God is going to meet us with, with mercy on that day. So that's a net. What about the positive statements? Forgive and, wait, wait a minute. Give and, what's the reciprocity from God. Can you, can you see it with me? Give, and it will be given to us. Now, I wonder if this is surprising to you, but if you notice that and you wrestle with the text, it's actually here on God's reciprocity in giving that Jesus lands his emphasis. So, the emphasis is not judge, it's not condemn, it's not forgive, but it's God's returned giving that's the emphasis. Do, do, do you notice that Christ even gives you an illustration? Look at the words in, in, in verse 38, speaking about God's giving. What's the illustration? See if you can get it. Good measure being given. What else? Pressed down. What is this image? Pressed down. Shaken together. What is it? Running over. This is the image of Corn being poured out in the ancient world. They would take a vessel. They would prepare the vessel. Some corn would go in. They'd squash it down, press it down to make sure there was enough. But this is an image of an abundance. Do you notice the lap is, is mentioned? It's the idea of the fold of the garment that they used to use as a pocket The fold of the garment has to be used because of just this incredible amount of corn that's been poured out. Do you see, Christian friend, what's being said? Christ is promising you the super abundant blessing of God. That should we respond when we're mistreated in the way that Christ calls for here, what is the promise from Jesus himself? You're going to be blessed. When? In this life certainly, perhaps through answered prayer or a knowledge of God's closeness and direction, but it gets better because where else will we be blessed in the life hereafter? You see it? If we respond like this, God will pour out on our lives a lavish blessing, great, unimaginable blessing for his people, and especially if we seek to obey Christ in these things. And that's a beautiful thought, but I'll end with this, shortest story in the world. Um, That opening illustration, phone pings, it's a WhatsApp message, not meant for you, Uh, that happened to one of my closest friends, and uh, the thing I want to say about him is that he's He's one of the most godly men that I know. Do you know how, uh, certainly if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll know that, that our zeal for Christ seems to come and go. It's so frustrating. But you can look back on our lives and think, that was a time where I was so zealous for Jesus. This friend that I'm talking about, it never seems to go. <laughs> so this is a guy who just seems always, always zealous for Jesus' name. Always concerned for Jesus' honor. The loveliest, gentlest, kindest kindest guy in the world. And he's driving along. And he's driving along and his phone goes, you know, and it's a, and it's a text or a WhatsApp. <coughs> and the, it's bad traffic. And so, and he's curious by nature. So he sort of, he pulls over and he reads this text. And he's devastated. Like, I mean, just devastated because... Here is this text, and it's sent from a friend of his who's not a Christian. And the friend is just tearing him apart, just criticizing him, tearing him apart. And so my friend later on was speaking to me about it. And it was amazing to hear him speak because he was hurt, devastated. But he said to me, Yeah, but I'm not up in arms with this guy. I'm not, in a sense, furious. I'm really disappointed in him. But look what I've been forgiven. And so what my friend did, and I mean it, he would never say this, but what he did was he forgave and gave. He forgave that person, but he sought to double his efforts in seeking to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to to that person. Maybe you're wondering why I'm telling you the story. I'm telling you the story because this is hard. What Jesus says to us here is tough, but I want you to go away understanding it is possible. And it's only possible in the transforming grace of the Lord our God. It's only possible if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and look to him for help. So maybe we end with Ephesians chapter four. (laughs) Paul says this to the church. You ready for it? He says, be kind to one another, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, and then Paul adds this, as God in Christ forgave you. I reckon that's the big idea, isn't it? When we are wronged, what do we do? Okay, we don't sweep things under the carpet, we don't pretend things don't happen, but we seek to treat that person in the way God has treated us in the gospel. When we're wronged, we hold out compassion. In God's power, we hold out mercy and we seek to hold out grace. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray.